Go ahead. All right, we're ready to go. Well, today we've talked already uh, about the Olympics. The Olympics have happened. I'm an Olympic. I don't know what the right word is. Maven. Not. I would get. Uh, I'm one of the people. It was in Tokyo. I would get up when the events, the track and field events began, and and stream them at five thirty or six in the morning. I've been following the Olympics a long time. I'm pretty knowledgeable about Olympic history and track and field is very moving to me. So the title of this little interaction is Athletes as Heroes Overcoming Adversity. And what prompts me to talk about that is um, Time had a feature article, it's one of a hundred how the Olympics changed the conversation about mental health. What, can you summarize what the bottom line is of those, an article with that kind of a heading, Zach, where they're going? What's the thought? Um, I don't know if I'm looking at the right article, but if it's from the times and they're saying how the Olympics have changed our idea of mental health, I, then, yeah. then it's, then it's going to be something get? like, it's going to be something like people are now, uh, feeling less stigma around declaring that they have a mental health crisis and then leaving the thing that they're doing to, to go take care of it. Right. And the example they use is Simone Miles. Hmm. And the ironic thing to me is Simone Miles is not an example of the thing that they're describing. Right. That's a good way to thread that needle. And she's not an example because she doesn't think of her life in terms of trauma, either her birth life. She didn't, she wasn't brought up by her birth mother and she was in foster care. And there are subsequent horrible things that happened to her, including Larry Nasser, which are abominable and can't happen. But she doesn't think in those terms when she said she couldn't continue in the Olympics, it was because she felt she was in a, not in a peak form. And she, she, could have failed and hurt herself. Right. And taking agency for your own life is something that we are a hundred thousand percent behind. It's the basis of the life process program. You know, if she got injured, people would be sympathetic, but it's her life. You have to take that control. And the main reason why she's not an example of, oh, you have to recognize your mental health and your traumas and then quit, is she came back and won another medal. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and so, so you know, I'm, I feel I'm in danger of being some old guy like who likes the heroes on Olympic Wheaties packages. And I admire people who face adversity and overcome it. And people say, oh, my God, that is so out of it. But I'm not the only one because after she won, her, it was only a bronze. And she's used to winning golds. The people in the audience and their teammates and around the world went wild. Yeah. And they went wild, I think, for the same reason I went wild, which is, okay, she's already the greatest athlete in the world in her field in women's gymnastics. She's like superhuman, but she's not superhuman. And, you know, she come to, came to grips with that and nonetheless still performed, you know, third in the world's good so you know we got a little pushback from in some places about recording that episode about Simone Biles 
because people thought we were like the Tucker Carlson's of the world who were saying, oh, she's a quitter. Um, and of course, I think he laid it out pretty well there. But our response to Simone Biles deciding to take care of her life responsibilities and saying that the Olympics couldn't be a priority now. For all we know, that's just the right decision, a healthy, correct decision to make for doing well in life. And that's her Do decision we, to take. Right. And we could call that, I mean, it might be heroic given circumstances. We might not call it heroic, but just the right thing to do. But we don't really know. What, what we're pushing against is the the media take that story and they say, aha, another person who's acknowledging her mental health and you know, no, she's got a mental health crisis. She needs to go see it, whatever, go see a shrink. And that's, that's the heroic part. And we were trying to say, none of us, we don't know her story and neither do the media, but the onus is on the media. If they're going to report a story on her to know what the hell they're talking about. So well, I would go, I'd say we're going to lose on this debate. The fact that you got, we got pushback when a meme comes out and every single commentator says the same thing. We yeah. don't know that she sought mental health assistance. Right. That's, That's exactly it. Oh, she might have gone home and meditated. She might have gone home and she might have gone home and had a drink because she was too tense. Um, but the main object, the, we're going to lose on this argument because people just believe it's good to take care, go to quit and go to mental health treatment. And our main argument against that is <clears throat> we're not doing well in the United States. And, you know, I'm just going to um, summarize briefly. We quoted David Brooks um, in which he focused on adult children's self-identified traumas. And the title of the piece was What's Ripping American Families Apart? And the subtitle is The United States Seems to Be in the Middle of a Pervasive Psychological Decline. We have the minority position, and I hate to drag you into the pit with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody says, well, America's great. People are always going into mental health treatment. But the United States, we refer to the 196-country World Health Organization uh, Global Burden of Disease. The United States has the most mental health and health treatment, and it's number two in year, uh, quality year, life years lost due to anxiety and depression combined, and number one in drugs combined. So, so the, you're the press, Right, exactly. It's so great. Everybody should be like us and sink to the bottom of the world ranking. But when everybody believes something, when every public New York Times, Time, when every publication says the same thing, we're going to lose. That's just a, that everybody believes. The added element to that, which we addressed, was not only that the story was spun that, oh, good, paying attention to mental illness. It was also antagonistic of a stoic outlook or a you know achievement-centered, stoic sort of you know overcoming your trauma outlook, which is exactly the problem that David Brooks addresses in that article. And that we're, I'm going to, because it's a losing argument Mm. to fight that. So today I'm going to do my Olympic heroes argument. It's not an argument, it's worship. And I'm just going to be starry eyed about some women, all women athletes and how they 
confronted challenges in their life, some involving mental health and triumph. I, I'm just a goofy old fashioned guy, I know. Um, I'm gonna start out with number one, Molly Seidel is an American who won the bronze medal in the marathon. Um, just for starters, here's just some unbelievable things. That was, she won the bronze medal. That was only the third marathon she ever ran. So already <laughs> you're going, huh? How's that possible? If you remember, I'm but she ran in the last Olympics in 2016 in Rio, and she ran in Atlanta to qualify for this, and then she ran in this. Um, a few hours before the race began, it was moved to an earlier start time at 6 a.m. Why did they do that? in Tokyo, because there was a record heat wave. Maybe you've heard about this. Runners face temperatures of 78 degrees Fahrenheit and 82% humidity at the start line. It's going to be uh, at 6 a.m. <laughs> 26.2 miles. By the way, let me just back up one step. The Olympics is organized around the marathon. And I'm just going to read from Wikipedia. The event was instituted in commemoration of the fabled run of the Greek soldier Pheidippides, a messenger from the Battle of Marathon to Athens, who reported the victory. I believe after he ran the 26 miles, he died, which is bad harm reduction. Uh, I'm not aware of any world-class marathoners who died after running the marathon. Now, Wikipedia goes on to say, the marathon can be completed by running with a walk or with a run-walk strategy. There were also wheelchair divisions. More than 800 marathons are held throughout the world each year, with the vast majority of competitors being recreational athletes, as larger marathons can have tens of thousands of participants. This, marathons are the only athletic event in the world, I believe, where world clear, you know, they have those people running up front, those two hour people, mm -hmm. and then they have a bunch of other people. And so, and I lived in Park Slope at the end of my, they ran by the end of my block and people would go out there and you'd go out there. Of course, you can see some world class guys run by. And then you'd see, you know, a bunch of schleppers, you know, regular people that we were at about, I don't know, mile 15. Anyway, everybody claps because come on. Um, so I'm back now to Molly Seidel. They changed the race time to 6 a.m. And this is what they, this is, I'm quoting, Seidel didn't seem to mind. Truthfully, I wanted it to be as hard as possible. She said after clinching bronze, I think I thrive off a little bit of adversity. The Olympic trials course in Atlanta was tough. The qualifying one. When the going gets tough, that's my strong suit. Huh. So you might think, well, here's one of those stoics who never talks about mental health. Um, but let's go on. She ran a tactical and gutsy race, staying with the lead pack, if not leading herself for the entire course. You may be aware that often the winners of long distance races in recent years have been Africans, Kenyans and Ethiopians. And 
her goal, she said, was to stick your nose where it doesn't belong and try to make some people angry. I, I loved, I loved that quote. I mean, that's sort of my mo too. <laughs> At least fifteen of the eighty-eight entrants would drop out. You know, you're twenty-five miles. It's eighty-nine degrees. Even those who previously thrived in hot conditions found the going tough. <clears throat> now remember, and Africans are used to running in heat. And her kind of strategy was, well, I'll just run with them. So I want to go into the background, and it's a mental health issue. About two months before the Olympic trials, I wanted everyone to know the real Molly. I went on my close friend Julian Hanlon's podcast called Running on Own, and I decided to get real, like really, really real. It was scary, but I felt ready. This is the first time I went public with my story about receiving treatment for disordered eating in 2016 and my struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, and anxiety. Revealing all this is a double-edged sword. The podcast was followed up by an article, the magazine in the week of the trials, and suddenly I was the Capitals eating disorder runner of the once great this runner or the once great runner who overcame an eating disorder. And I bolded this, but um much more than that. Mm. But she's somebody, I mean, one of the things that we discuss is being open about your problems. We're for that. And seeking support for your problems, we're for that. Normally, I live with my sister, Isabel, in Boston. She's a huge part of my support system. But she went back to her hometown in Wisconsin in the early summer. This is in response to the pandemic. They called the Olympics, they postponed the Olympics. I was alone in the apartment and that's when I started to struggle. In the past, I would have been like, no, I'm fine. I can handle this on my own. I bolded this. I would have cut myself off from people and my life would have been full of self-destructive behavior. Back then I didn't have a toolbox to combat everything that I had struggled with since a young age. I didn't have the mental techniques to get myself out of those dark moments. Now she's been in treatment, but this is the only technique that she mentions. Mm-hmm. This time was different. I had self-awareness and tools. I realized that I needed my support system. I couldn't be alone. I needed my family. So I went back to Wisconsin for a month. That's not a really fancy mental health. I'm, we're 100% for it. And we talked about, remember, Gymnast Suni Lee and her whole Hamang clan, where she's running for, you know, 150 people in our living room <laughs> you mean to say it's it's a down-to-earth story it's not a fanciful tale that people usually tell about their mental illness and she's both gutsy she didn't quit and she was open about her mental health issues why shouldn't she be and she dealt with them in a way you know you they haven't just invented the idea of seeking family support as a way of dealing with difficulty. That's not, and she doesn't mention taking drugs. <clears throat> All right. There's going to be a quiz, Zach. This is going to be tough. So the first person I've discussed is Molly Seidel, American bronze medal marathon. We're up to Laura Muir, British, 1500 meters silver. That's second place. I, I Laura, Muir has never won a big-time world championship or Olympic race. So she's kind of running, hearing footsteps behind her. She's never won a medal. 
As one athlete called fate blasted towards immortality, the winning runner is a Kenyan named Faith Kipyegon. Another, Britain's Laura Mir, never lost her, never lost her faith. And in the women's 1500 meter final of breathtaking intensity, she was rewarded with a gutsy and overdue Olympic medal. Again, we're talking about speaking about emotions. I don't think I've ever been so scared. I mean, it, it's hard for us to even grasp it. You're 1500, it's like the miles. And she's running against the best runners in the world. She's a world-class runner, but she's never really totally succeeded at that level. And so she gunned past Sifan Hassan on the final bend to move into the silver medal position, quote, because the past few times I have lost it in the last 200 meters, I was so scared that I was going to get pipped to fourth. That two people are going to run by her. I gave it absolutely everything. I was tightening up so bad, I thought, keep pushing, keep pushing. I gave it everything. There have been a lot of sad tears, but now I have silver and a British record as well. As she spoke, her voice began to break. So she's my hero. She faced, she's still emotional. She dealt with, you know, some history of loss. And she decided she wasn't going to lose. All right, she passed Sifan Hassan, who was a Dutch Ethiopian who won three medals, which is impossible because the three medals she won were the bronze in the 1500. She got passed by Muir, but came in third. She won the gold in the 5,000, the gold in the 10,000. The 5,000 and 10,000, the 5,000 is run on the first Saturday of the Olympics, the 10,000 is run on the last Saturday. The 1,500 requires a qualifying round, an opening round, a semifinal, and a final, where you're running 1,500 meters against the world's best runners. And she ran that race on a Friday to come in third, and then the next day, she was going to run 10,000 meters. At the end of the, <clears throat> somebody added all those numbers up. At the end of 24,500 meters of hard running and six races over nine days, Safan Hassan of the Netherlands stood alone before tumbling to the track, disbelief etched across her face. I have trained every single moment thinking about this for four years, she said. We've talked about immigrants. Uh, Hassan, 28, was born in Ethiopia, but came to the Netherlands as a refugee in 2008. You know, I'm guessing that was some duress. She is now in the conversation as one of the greatest distant runners in Olympic history. On Saturday, Hassan won the women's 10,000 meters at the Tokyo Games to pull off an extraordinary feat, winning medals in three grueling events, the 1500, the 5000, and the 10,000s. 
Back on the medal podium for the third and final time, she cried, quote, and it wasn't the medal, she said, it was that I'd done, it's a relief. I think I'm kind of crazy. Why would somebody even, and a lot of runners, they say, well, how can she do that? You can't run the 5,000, then run three heats of the 1,500, then run the 10,000 the next day. It's, it's impossible. On the night of the track and field at the Olympics, Hassan unleashed a ferocious kick on the bell lap of the 10,000 meters to separate herself from Kalkadan Gizaheng of Bahrain, who finished second, and let us Let's in bet Giddy of Ethiopia, who drifted the third. Giddy holds the world record in the event, but even she was no match for Hassan. So she just ran 1,500 meters the day before. She got passed by Muir. She came in third. And then she's going against the world record holder in 10,000. And then she made, and people are saying, well, how, aren't your legs won't let you do that. Then she made her sprint to win in the final lap after the 1500 final day before. She wouldn't let herself lose, is my comment. I don't know. I'm going to admire that forever. <clears throat> and then I have a note here. Um, I want to do a little drunk history now. I know we're mixing up memes but I've already had a bourbon with my coffee this morning, so I'm ready to do a drunk history. Um, this is gonna go, you're, you're gonna to have to take notes on this for the final. Um, in 1968, there was something called the Prague Spring. In those days, the Russians totally conquered and subverted all the governments in Eastern Europe. And somehow a guy named Alexander Dubček became head of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia and he started liberating the country and letting people have free opinions. And the way that used to work out, the Russians sent in tanks in 1969. And they didn't kill Dubček, but he's never had another good job. And in 1969, you know about me that I have an extremely dull life, but my life used to be slightly more exciting. And I, I entered graduate school in 68, and then I went to South Africa to do my dissertation. And I, all along the way, I was in Berlin, and I knew some Germans. And you used to be able to go to East Berlin for a day. And I wanted to go to Prague after the cut breakdown, which was, they weren't letting Westerners in. But I went with my German friend to East Berlin and we went to the Czech embassy and I applied for a visa and I, we were there about two hours and my German friend would say, hey, what's up, you know? And what they were probably doing is calling back to Prague and saying, can we let this guy in? I'll jump, you know, right now Prague is like a millennial playground, mm. you know, um, Westerners are there constantly. When I got there, I was the only Westerner there. And so, you know, I would go into a shop and when I went into a barber shop, I saw some pictures in the back. And I said, uh, who are those pictures? And one of the pictures was a Dubček, who was, current, you know, an unemployed government official. And the other picture was of Emil Satopek. And I, what Hassan what did is unbelievable. But Emil Zetopek 
1952, he won the 5,000 and 10,000. And then on the last day of the Olympics on Sunday, he decided to enter the marathon. And this is kind of a all time head, head game thing. When you run the 5,000, 10,000, you run faster than you do in the marathon because it's 26 miles. The British runner was favored to win and said Topek ran up next to him and said, excuse me, I've never run this race before. Can you tell me why everybody's running so slow? And then he, so that was in 1952. In 1969, I'm in a barbershop and they have pictures of Dubček, a man who sacrificed his life and his career for freedom, and Emil Zetopek. So my response to these heroes, I'm not alone. You know what I'm saying? People remember Emil Zetopek forever. And that great line, excuse me, I've never run this race before. Why is everybody running so slow? Like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Can you put, um, now I'm going to go to some American women. <clears throat> Remember, we've done Sifan Hassan. We've done Laura Muir. And we've done Molly Seidel. And when I tell you, I... All of these people are heroes to me. I'm not making it up. Allison Felix is an American who won the bronze in the 400 meters. Oh, I thought you were sorry. I thought you wanted me to go to that picture. Ah, so. perfect. Is that good? Okay. The picture on the left is Allison Felix. She won, she's won 12 medals over five Olympics. She's 33 years old. I mean, look at those women. They're stunning. They're so beautiful. Look at them. They, this is a race where four people run 400 meters each. And Allison Felix had won, had come in third. She won the bronze in the individual 400. Um, we're going to discuss each of them. Uh, um, the one on the far right is... Um, The one on the next to the right is named Muhammad. And the one on the far right is Sidney McLaughlin. And the one second right next to Felix is Athing Mew. So let's go back to Felix. Um, Felix is not the greatest runner of all time, Usain Bolt is like a superhuman. He's the male. He's He won the 100 and 200-meter dash and was part of the 400-meter relay golds for three straight Olympics. No other human being could touch him. Uh, Felix is a great runner, but she's had some seconds and some disappointments, and she hasn't won some golds. She started out in the 200-meters, but then um, she had to move up to the 400 because she doesn't have quite the leg speed. She's 35 years old. I said 33. It's her fifth Olympics, two years removed from pregnancy complications that could have killed her or her daughter. She is five foot six and 126 pounds. And age had pushed her out of the 200. 
our signature event up in 400. Of the eight women who lined up on the starting blocks Friday in the individual 400 meters, she had the seventh slowest time in the preliminary rounds. Uh, Miller Weebu, the winner from the Bahamas, opened a huge lead down the home stretch and demolished the rest of the field, winning gold in 48.3 seconds. Felix kept chugging in the outside line, fighting to make history. She clung to third place, but with 50 meters to go, was overtaken by Stephanie Ann McPherson of Jamaica. It looked like Felix would succumb, but she spurted ahead to take third. In the interviews afterwards, Felix said, for me, this wasn't about winning. It was about women and mothers and overcoming. Her fifth Olympics, 12th medal, next to last slowest competing time. She's passed. And she, at the age of 35, she pushes herself across the finish line. And she, within two years, she had a near-death experience. So, I don't know. Amazing. What a heroine. What a hero. And that's, we looked at the picture. So, on the two right, the women on the two right were... Um, Delilah Muhammad and Sydney McLaughlin. They ran in the 400 meter hurdles and both of them within the last several weeks had broken the world record. And in the final in the Olympics, they both broke the world record again. And McLaughlin unfortunately for Muhammad broke it by more she won and Muhammad came in second. So there were two people competing one against the other in a friendly, loving way. They hugged afterwards, they were the Americans. Um, and I might add, and McLaughlin is 21 years old, the woman who set the world record. And she comes from New Jersey. <clears throat> So I was reading about her, and now we're back to the woman who was standing second from the left, whose name is Athing Mu. The New Jersey natives will take Felix's place as the face of Team USA. McLaughlin and Mew is also from Jersey. Mew is 19 years old. She's an American. She won the gold in the 800 meters before participating in the 4 by 100 the quiz is going to be tough. The final is going to be tough, Zach. You know what I mean? We've got a lot of races here. Don't forget Duke check. Um, no single American track athlete made a bigger impact in Tokyo than McLaughlin and Mew. And given that they are 21 and 19 respectively, it's hard to project even greater things in the future. It isn't hard. It wasn't just how they performed on the track either. They were quotable, polished, and at times hilarious. And we've talked about Athletes being very anxious about presenting themselves. You is a 19-year-old who lives in Trenton, New Jersey, which is an area high in negative urban outcomes. Her parents migrated from southern Sudan. And at the end in the interview, she just won the 800 meter race in the Olympics at the age of 19. And her strategy was to avoid all that pushing and shoving. She ran to the front, 
and she never relented. Twice around the track. You wearing a barrette with the word, wore a barrette with the word confident. She became the first American woman in, woman in 53 years to win a gold medal in the 800 meter race. She led from start to finish. She set a US record too, and then announced that she planned on not only breaking the world record, 38 year old world record, but she wanted to win an unprecedented double gold. Nobody's ever done this, of 400 and 800 meters in the next Olympics. And she, you know, her parents came here. She's one of seven children from Southern Sudan and they live in Trenton. It's unbelievable, isn't it? How could somebody do that? So I'm gonna ask you why, is there something wrong with me that I admire these women as heroes? And why do I love accomplishment and achievement so much? Is that a mental disorder that I live and die and watch these people, in this case, women, do these stunning things and overcome adversity to become world champions or, you know, top or medal winners? Why, why do I respond so much to that? Am I, and am I totally out of touch and out of fashion, Zach? Yes. No kidding. There's, you know, there are people in every story of, you know, elite achievement or, you know, strong achievement or impressive stories, people who are lauded as heroic at any moment along those stories, they could have gone one of two ways um, or maybe a few different ways. One is they could, they, they all had some traumatic or distressful moments in their lives and they could have operated out of complete fear that, that they shouldn't be doing the thing that they're doing. The thing is that they all pushed forward and did it despite it being a risk. And the reason was because it was so purposeful to them. And it's almost like, I think a few of those athletes even said, it's not, it wasn't about the medal there upon the reflection. I mean, they had their lived circumstances, some, a lot of them negative. Then they had a purpose and they, you know, it's like time passed by like nothing when they're living their purpose. They're so, set on what they need to do they're so it's so obvious you know their what their goals should be and at the end it's not even about whether they reached the goals they had set for themselves because there's a realization like in any hero's journey that it was about the entire process of it and what they're not doing at the end is sitting around thinking you know i'll never know what it would have been like to take those risks or to work hard they're never regretting doing anything that they did which is you know that's the completely opposite story to the stigma mental illness stories that we hear every day that we're inundated with and i in a way my question was slightly you know polemical i'm not yeah. the only person that admires these women no no one person wins this is everyone Every, only one person wins any marathon race. The New York Marathon, right. race, they have, I don't know, 5,000 people. And a lot of people, some are, you know, great runners. A lot of kind of middle-aged people, people in wheelchairs. And they love the winners too. I mean, they don't say, oh, well, I'm like them or I'm not as good as them. They're inspired by them. And a lot of those runners, you know, 
have had, you know, the, the two of these runners were African immigrants. They've come from really tough places in life. They didn't, not, nobody set a table for them. And every one of them has overcome, every one of them had to overcome some kind of adversity. And doesn't that inspire all of us, I don't know, to feel that we can deal with life's difficulties and adversity and take a shot at it? Aren't they inspirational? Let me jump to another question. You know, Zach, this is supposed to be an addiction podcast. What the hell does all this have to do with addiction? Are any of those people confused about what they were up to? You know, they're their lives not only were they able to overcome a lot of the adversity they had faced without succumbing to some sort of illusory comfort like a lot of people do um, especially a lot of americans that also has the negative outcomes you know like drugs or like overeating or like whatever whatever involvement you get yourself in that that uh, helps you ignore the feelings of distress. They, they felt those feelings, you know, all the way through. And not only did they feel them, but they mapped it on to some sort of a purpose that made the purpose all that more meaningful. Hassan when the, think about herself, am I crazy? Everybody says I'm crazy to run yeah. 1,500 meters. She, everybody had a moment of doubt. Uh, the woman who came in, um, third in the marathon, you know, she went off the edge during her prep, you know, just in the time between when they delayed the marathon. And she said, in the past, I've gotten absorbed into self-destructive behaviors. Um, and what we believe, we talk about purpose and achievement and meaning in life. We know, we know not everybody's going to win a gold medal. Not everybody that we talked about won a gold medal. But we believe that pursuing something positive is worthwhile in itself and is one of the most sustaining forces you can have in life to prevent you from getting caught up in the dead end. And we believe it, we have some basis for believing it. Longitudinal studies show, um, there's a famous Terman study um, where they looked at people with high IQs and they found out that the single most important factor in people having a successful life and even living longer was that they had some purpose in life, even if they didn't actually fulfill the purpose even if the purpose in a sense was unfulfillable. And so you, you might call this sort of an existential approach. There's something called existential uh, psychology and therapy. A man um, named Yalom is one of the most famous people that in that approach. And we agree with him that finding and pursuing meaning, however you define it, it doesn't mean that you have to beat everybody in the world. It just has to mean that you have something motivating and purposeful in your life that allows you to continue, you know, to proceed 
because you're going to encounter, encounter setbacks and difficulties. And that's, um, that's one of the things that we, that the life process program brings to addiction treatment or coaching. And it's something that we feel Americans can lose sight of in their pursuing mental health as the main goal, we're pursuing mental health as a side effect of engaging positively with life. There's, um, we mentioned Carol Dweck in our book, An Outgrowing Addiction. And I don't know, we, maybe we mentioned Ellen Langer as well, but it, definitely oh. Carol Dweck. And one of the, one of her ideas that's not talked about a lot is leaning on an uncertainty. And then she goes on to say, and this is Angela Duckworth as well, goes on to say, well, what does that mean? It's like one of her biggest fears is that people are going to read that book. And then there's going to be a bunch of classroom teachers that say, all right, kids start leaning on uncertainty. And then if they don't do it, then they're graded poorly. And which is exactly the opposite of what she wants. No, it's like, you're never certain. So you can set a goal do it, have purpose, live your purpose. And the people tend to pick up relationships, pick up new involvements, pick up new things along the way of that journey that kind of cling to their purpose so that the whole purposefulness compounds over time. So you, you said about not reaching a goal, you could not reach your goal, but what you might learn along the way or at the end is that, oh, this was purposeful for a whole host of other reasons than what I expected or what I thought it would be sure i'm glad that i did it you know you're not becoming positive accoutrements from that thing exactly i uh i published my memoir a scientific life in the edge at the age of 75 and i did that very consciously because a man named emmanuel ezekiel published an article in atlantic saying well people should all die at the age of 75 (laughs) article um and then when i got done my memoir i said huh because of Zach and Dee, one of our coaches, I this morning, you know, I ride my bike to the uh, the Y, I, where I met Mayor, as you, if you read my memoir, I ran into the mayor of New York, de Blasio, several times. And when you met, ran into de Blasio, too, when we were in South Slope. And there's a big armory, and I exercised there in the morning. You know, I got up there at 7 and then I had a really delicious cheese croissant, but let's put that aside. <laughs> and um, um, I'm thinking, gosh, now what do I do? I put my name into one of these calculators, my data, and it said I could live to be 90. So I've got 15 years. And I'm thinking, huh, well, who am I going to hang out with? What am I going to do? Do I have enough money? How's my health going to be for all the time? And then I start thinking, you know, could be a fun challenge, all of this, you know, and I mean, let's get my head in the right place, you know, for dealing with all of this. And, you know, a, a, the world's a difficult place right now for, every, for nearly every, for everyone. Um, it's fair to say life is a challenge now. There, there's no kind of resting place for virtually anyone. And in a way, 
addiction, and when we look at drug deaths, 93,000 in 2020, that's one manifestation of the fact that people are being overwhelmed. When things overwhelm you, it's not challenges, it's overwhelming despair. Right. So we're, we're trying to create non-addictive answers in a world where you, it's very hard to just coast through. It's almost like the kind of facing up to challenges, avoiding retreating, being passive and defensive and fear-inspired. Um, we're almost saying those methods which conceivably could have worked 50 years ago, I don't know, 100 years ago, they're hard to rely on now. Anybody with a purpose is could still have their challenges, you know, right now. Um, but if you have a purpose that's carried through these times, it's going to continue to carry you through these times, then you're probably in good shape. You know, you're not getting distracted by the burdens of life. And if you feel like you're short of a purpose, it's just never too late to develop an understanding of what's meaningful in life. I think that's the bookend. And we had a discussion earlier uh, uh, on a separate cast about a man who's wondering about his work and should he just try and get by and he's maybe afraid to expand his horizons. We don't make that decision for any human being, but we want everybody to contemplate that possibility. Brilliant. Stanton. Thanks for all of this. This is like a good, the best focused recap of the Olympics that I've heard. Remember the quiz, Dubček, Zadopek, Hassan, Muir. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to be a quiz on this week. You, you did well pronouncing all those names, by the way. My best. <laughs> right. Au revoir. Take care, Stanton.